if I, as a business school professor, feel like I can't stand up in front of the class and make a moral argument, I have to make a bottom line argument, then I, I feel like I've failed as a faculty member. Welcome to the On Wisdom podcast with Charles Cassidy and Igor Grossman. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We'll discuss what it means for each of us and for the society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. First of all, I would like to thank our listeners. You've been wonderful so far. Please continue rating us on whatever platform you're using to listening to this podcast. Today, we'll be talking about the individual and the culture, and uh, in particular, the work culture. And we have a special guest. Uh, it is uh, my dear friend, Adam Grant, who is a professor of psychology at Wharton School, at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, he's a New York Times bestselling author, a TED Talk Suprema, and a former junior Olympic diver. And uh, it's uh, a great privilege to have Adam on this podcast today. I've known him since grad school, where we went to grad school together in Michigan. And uh, now, sort of, we went to some different directions, but now we get back together talking about wisdom and uh, work culture. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Don't thank me yet, but I'm <laughs> thrilled to be here. <laughs> yeah, good point. We might come back to thanking you. We'll see how it goes at the end. Yeah, um, exactly. I, I wanted to kind of start with a quick uh, personal question, which was just... In terms of, you know, since you've written Give and Take, uh, when you were sort of, of advising people to help others as much as possible, how do you must have been inundated with people sort of going, seeing that as a window and going, right, Adam Grant can't possibly refuse a favor if asking. So how do you manage what must have been a deluge of, uh, asking, uh, for help, uh, since you've kind of declared that statement a few days back? <laughs> Well, I think the the kicker was uh, when the New York Times ran this story on my book, Give and Take. And, you know, it was sort of ironic because it was a whole article about the potential benefits of being generous. Right. And then mm -hmm. instead of giving, there were a whole lot of people who thought, wait, I'm going to try to get something from the person <laughs> who studies giving. Right, right, right. Uh, take so her they alert, obviously hadn't right? really taken the message away from the book. Clearly missed the point. But, you know, maybe maybe the less cynical interpretation is that they, they realized that I enjoy helping other people and they wanted to bring me some joy. But That's there, a very charitable some... interpretation. <laughs> yeah, there were some pretty unusual requests. Uh, I had somebody who wanted help fighting their medical malpractice lawsuit, even though I'm not a lawyer or a doctor. Um there, there was even one person who wrote and said, uh, I just am writing an email to find out if it's true that you respond to all emails. <laughs> and I wrote back and said, it's true. It's true. Uh, no, it's so, not true. You can't, yeah, I can't say that, can you? Um, no, but so what, what I ended up doing was I, I basically developed some, some heuristics for, for figuring out, you know, when and how and to whom to respond. And so, um, I said, first of all, you know, if I'm going to maintain a public email address, I need to have an auto reply uh, with, you know, FAQs and common links dealt mm -hmm. with there. Um, I think the, you know, kind of the individual choices have to do more with, okay, who am I trying to help? When am I trying to help? And how right. am I trying to help? So the, the who, I, I made a list of priorities and I said, all right, family first, students second, colleagues third, everyone else fourth. Uh, so that when when I have to make a trade off, it's sort of clear yeah. who matters most to me. Yeah, you got a flow chart. And then yeah. the when and how are just blocking out time to get my own work done, where I'm not available unless it's an emergency, and I'm trying to help in ways that I enjoy and am pretty good at, as opposed to just responding to whatever request yeah. comes in. But there must be something that's had to in your sort of priority flow chart. Like, do you do much uh, diving these days? 
<laughs> no, long retired. I've actually I haven't been on a real diving board since uh, I lost. I, I think Igor since I last saw you in Anna Arbor, which was circa 2007. Yeah, been too long. Yeah, so Adam, Adam is not diving. I'm not dancing. Oh man, what are we doing with our lives? <laughs> <laughs> so many missed opportunities. That's right. So uh, when I mentioned to one of my friends that I have Adam Grant on my podcast next, uh, and uh, he said, like, you know, you definitely have to ask him, does he ever sleep? <laughs> so Adam, of course I it. sleep. <laughs> I, what I is mean, the I secret? Hate- what is the secret to being one of the most prolific people in academia? Oh, I first of all, I. I sleep seven to eight hours a night. Nice. Uh, and I do it not because I like it, but because I have to. <laughs> I don't function well without it. And I wish I wish that weren't the case. I've I've been dreaming for years of outsourcing sleep to somebody who really enjoys it, where they could take naps and I would feel rested afterward. <laughs> but you know, strangely, there's no technology to make that happen yet. Um, I you know I don't I honestly don't feel very productive on most days. I'm constantly f- falling short of my goals for how much I want to get done and. Uh, you know, how much progress I want to make. And I guess on, on the days where I do feel productive, I feel like a few things have happened. One, I've, uh, I've prepared the day before for what I want to work on. Uh, so, you know, I've, I've done some reading or some data analysis or some writing or had an interesting conversation that kind of whatever, whatever I've done to prepare the stage has kind of set me up to, to hit the ground running, so to speak. And then the other thing that, that I have found immensely helpful uh, for, for trying to increase my own productivity is to stop managing my time and instead start managing my attention. Mm-hmm. I feel like you know there are only so many hours in the day, and you know, the more obsessed I got with time management, the more mm. I noticed how many moments I was wasting. And you know, that, that was just more and more frustrating. And I said, look, I've got I've to just figure out what are the projects and people that are top priority for me. And then I'm just not going to worry about how long they take. And what that means is most of what I work on is is interesting and meaningful enough that intrinsic motivation is there. Oh, that's deep. I mean, I, I tried to do the same, but uh, yeah, the preparation is really, uh, really the key. And I often forget. <laughs> so then, <laughs> then I just try to just like uh, run through the day like like a rabbit. Um, I want to switch gears and uh, get more serious now. So. The first thing that we want to talk about today is the culture, the culture of nonconformity and the culture of giving. So, Adam, first question, what is the culture of nonconformity? I feel like for a lot of my life, I've created cultures of conformity uh, in the, the places that I've been. So, for example, mm-hmm. in teaching my classes, uh, I teach a course on evidence-based management, essentially. And you know, the goal is for students to internalize the best social science evidence about how to lead and make decisions and, and build teams. Mm-hmm. And I felt over time like they weren't actually evolving their own thinking. Uh, and like I wasn't being challenged mm-hmm. uh, because the expectation was, you know, when, when something's been supported by a series of rigorous randomized controlled experiments in the lab and longitudinal studies in the field, uh, you know, we've, we kind of figured it out. Yeah, we know what works yeah. for most of the people most of the time. Yeah, yeah, check. And yet we know as social scientists that the world is complex and there are always conditions where an effect goes away or where it even reverses. And so... I, I decided that it would be really powerful in the classroom to create a culture of nonconformity where, mm-hmm. you know, students were encouraged to question the best evidence to, you know, explore the boundary conditions of, you know, of when something we believe to be true might actually be false. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, I think you could think about that obviously outside of the classroom. You could think about that in a company. You could think about it in a community, in a government, in a neighborhood, in a school. But I think that, you know, we, one, of, one of my big worries is that cultures and conformity stifle creativity and innovation because people are either discouraged from thinking about original ideas or if they do have ideas, then they don't have the psychological safety to speak up about them. So one thing that uh, uh, seems to be connected uh, in your work uh, on the originals, uh, you talk about original leaders uh, who are highly innovative. So what separates managers, um, typical managers, uh, in normal, uh, not super original um, uh, environment from the original leaders? Well, I think one of the mistakes that people make, empirically at least, is uh, they they focus solely on the depth of their experience and overlook the importance of breadth. Um, and you know, I've seen this with a lot of leaders and managers where they assume that you know if if I want to have bold ideas in a domain, then first I have to become really knowledgeable about that domain. Mm-hmm. And it is true that if you know nothing about a field, it's very hard to contribute anything to it, right? Right. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not going to have much luck uh, designing an electric car or you know inventing an iPhone uh, if I know nothing about engineering. And yet, you know, as as you guys know, psychologists have identified uh, a little trap that's called cognitive entrenchment, uh, which is where you actually know so much about your own area mm. that you take things for granted that ought to be questioned, mm. right? Uh, and you become blind to creative ideas. And one of the ways to overcome that is to seek out experience outside of your core domain. And so there's evidence, for example, on... Um, I, I Actually, I know very little about the fashion world, but I was the, the associate editor who accepted a, a very cool study on, um, on fashion houses and why some fashion houses produce mm. more innovative collections than others. And the basic finding was that uh, the creative directors of fashion houses who spend more time abroad uh, end up generating more creative collections uh, as as judged by by expert reviewers, and Interesting. it's not it's not the pure time abroad that matters though. Uh, so how many countries mm-hmm. you've just visited, or you know the number of years that you've lived abroad, isn't what matters. It's the amount of time you spent working abroad in a country different from your own, where you know you got exposed to different norms, different concepts, different ways of thinking about fashion, mm. and you were able to then internalize those and bring them back to your home country, or you know recombine. Uh, you know, some old ideas from different cultures into something new. And right. I think that kind of broad experience is critical. I think there's also some evidence that I love from uh, from the world of Nobel Prize winning scientists, where one of the things that distinguishes them from their peers is they actually are more likely to have artistic hobbies. Uh, so Nobel Prize winners are, I think they're roughly twice as likely to play a musical instrument uh, as they're technically skilled, but not so original peers. <laughs> they're seven times as likely to uh, to draw or paint 12 times as likely to do creative writing like fiction or poetry and get this 22 times as likely to perform as actors, dancers, or yes, magicians. Well, magicians. Well, we know some in psychology. Yeah. Yeah, You know, as a, as a former magician, I found this, this research very encouraging, but, (laughs) (laughs) but again, you know, you see, you see the, the maybe curiosity just leads people to engage with these, you know, these, these disparate pursuits. But I think there's also evidence suggesting that the time you spend engaging in the arts makes you a better scientist. So one thing that you may have been pushed back on, uh, it almost suggests like that everybody can become original or creative or innovative. And I wonder um, when you 
presented this work, uh, talked about uh, the originals. Uh, what were um, what was your take on the limitations of that? So, like, uh, well, like some of us may be more predisposed to be uh, sure. creative, others more cautious. Um, so, what are the limits? Yeah, I, Igor, I agree with that. I mean, I think I think that's a fair criticism in that. You know, we, we all start at different points uh, on what you might think of as an originality curve. And some of that is, you know, is because of personality traits like curiosity and openness to, to new experiences. Some of that is because of, you know, of cognitive abilities. Uh, you know, it's, <laughs> if you go back to the idea of inventing an iPhone or an electric car, really hard to do that mm, if, right. you know, if you don't have the capability to, to solve engineering problems. Um, and you know you you haven't either been born with or developed an, an aptitude for you know for for that kind of problem solving. But I think that you know my 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 perspective on this would be that <laughs> yes, you know some people are naturally more creative than others, uh, but that doesn't mean we don't all have our own original ideas. Uh, I actually think most people have original ideas every day, right? Anytime you're uh, you're at, you're at work or you're at the grocery store or you're at your kid's school. Mm-hmm. And you're frustrated that something isn't working, and you see a way that you could improve it. Um, that's you know that's a potential moment of originality. And I think what holds a lot of us back is we say, "Well, I'm not one of those people," and you know we sort of we write ourselves off, as opposed to saying, "Look, you know what? One of the ways that I can champion original ideas more effectively is uh, if you know if I'm not somebody who's super creative, I will know that that it's, the people who are good at generating ideas are not often the ones who are best at implementing them." Right, uh, right. Be, being the person who's uh, who's you know who has the courage and conviction to to champion something original often requires being pretty disagreeable. We know from from lots of research, and yet disagreeable people often have a very hard time getting their their crazy ideas accepted because other people find them you know too uh, too adversarial, too confrontational, um, right. sometimes demeaning. And so you know, I think there's there's always an opportunity to say, look. You know, original ideas are not evenly distributed in the population, um, but neither are the skills to make those ideas a reality. And it's often the very people who feel that they're unoriginal who are the best executors and the best voices uh, for those new ideas. Right. So you could have a role to play as as the promoter of someone else's ideas rather than necessarily being the initiator. Yeah, I think I think that's much more concise than the way I said it. <laughs> I agree with it. <laughs> Thanks, Charles. Um, I wanted to. So this episode, kind of, we framed it as like uh, the individual and the culture, and in, in give and take, and and in originals, you in both of those, you argue for uh, culture shifts. Essentially, you know, to you know, in, in the first book, towards a giving culture, and I just kind of wondered what someone's supposed to take away from that, in in the sense that, say, you're yeah, you're not the boss of a startup, so you don't have... I mean, most people would think if you're the boss of the startup, you probably have quite a lot of influence on the culture. So how how much influence can someone kind of around the middle of the totem pole, how much influence can they have on the culture? So they they read your book, they say, yes, I'm, I'm behind this giving. I think it's a good idea. They go to work, they adopt these behaviours. What do we know about how likely that is to actually change the culture itself? I don't think it's easy. Yeah. But I also don't think it's impossible. I would I would say, you know, one of my favorite definitions of culture is that it's what people do when no one's watching. Mm. And if you think about that for a moment, it means that yes, leaders have a disproportionate influence on culture. Uh, founders do. We know that from extensive research. But 
that doesn't mean that they're the only people who affect culture, right? It doesn't matter what leaders say and do if nobody follows them and enacts the culture that they're trying to create. And so, you know, I, I would then break this down and say there, there are probably three ways that you can influence a culture if you're at the middle or even the bottom of an organization. The first one is to recognize that it's hard to change the culture of a whole workplace, uh, right. but it's much easier to influence the culture of your local team. And so I would think about what are the values and norms and practices, you know, that we engage in and what are some small shifts that we could make that, you know, that might move the needle a little bit. So for example, if you feel like you have a, you know, more of a taking culture in your team or, you know, a matching culture that's more about fairness or reciprocity and you want to move in the giving direction, I would think about, okay, what are some ways that, you know, that we could get people to be more comfortable asking for help? Mm-hmm. knowing that help seeking is one of the biggest predictors of help giving and that if people surface their their problems and their requests more often um there are some people who step up who are willing and able to be generous um so that would be one direction a second direction would be to recognize that uh there may be leaders who are willing to support some of the changes you want to see uh, so you guys probably know Katie Lillianquist's work on advice seeking, where she shows that when you ask someone for advice, it's one of the more effective ways to turn mm-hmm. them into your advocate uh, because you know you you flatter them. We all love to be asked for advice. Like you're a genius, <laughs> you knew to come to me. Yeah. Uh, and then also you force them to take your perspective, and you know that Igor, you would say that creates some self distancing in your research, right? Right. And so they they get less attached to the culture that maybe they've been dreaming of and and they're more likely to think about, well, why would I want this, you know, this more generous giving culture? Um, and then, you know, at minimum, they'll give you some good suggestions and best case scenario, they will actually step up and, and volunteer to help you create the culture you're asking mm-hmm. about. And then the last thing that, that I think you can do is to recognize that uh, every organization has culture carriers. Um, we have a doctoral student, uh, Constantinos Kudaferis, who's been uh, leading research on this. And what we found in, in this work is that uh, some organizations even have awards for culture carriers, um, you know, employees who don't have formal responsibilities as leaders, but are looked up to as role models and as voices for, you know, improving values, uh, for, you know, reinforcing or strengthening important norms. And I think one thing you can do as a junior person or a middle manager is look for those culture carriers. Who are the people, you know, that, that everybody sees as representing or exemplifying the culture? And then, you know, either talk to them about how you can drive the change you want to see uh, or even begin to collaborate with them. Uh, very interesting. That makes a lot of sense. I, I can I can think of people in in places that I've worked that have a disproportionate amount of capital for some reason. It's a little it's a little unclear how they got it, but they do have it. So you're saying those people have a sort of uh, extra bit of influence, and if you can sort of sidle along to them and and get them on board, that can sort of in, that can work as a lever for you. Yeah, and Charles, I would say that you know at least from the research I've read on this, there there are two ways that people get into that position of of having influence. Uh, one is they're extremely competent at their jobs, uh, and you know people admire their expertise and their mastery, uh, and so they you know they start to listen to them and, mm. and want to follow them. Mm. And then the other is um, they are extremely generous, and right. you know people admire and appreciate all of the, the the ways they go in above and beyond for you know for their colleagues for the organization, and so they then see them as kind of prototypical of what this organization stands for. So I want to ask another question, shift gears a little bit again uh, from the culture of the individuals to culture of organizations and how we can change the culture of organizations, uh, specifically pushing the organizations 
workplace, for instance, to be more pro-social, to take on sort of like a more positive role in the society, either like say improve environment, uh, work on environmental challenges, uh, income inequality, or facilitate human rights. So the question here that I have is, how should we go about that? So there are sort of extrinsic uh, um, uh, motiva- uh, motivators, extrinsic reasons, for instance, improving some bottom line, organization's reputation, or there may be some kind of more internal, intrinsic motivational process. What is your take on that, Adam? How can we improve the organizational culture to benefit the society at large? I, I think there, there are two questions embedded in that question. The first mm-hmm. one is, should we? And then the second, uh, right. how, how can <laughs> we? Right. So let, let's go in reverse order, because I think that the how can we, uh, we have some good evidence. Uh, Dave Mayer, Sue Ashford, and their colleagues recently published some research showing that uh, in the world of business, most people think that the most effective case to make uh, is kind of the economic case. Right. So, you know, you, you make you you make the business case. You say here exactly as you described, here's how it's going to benefit your bottom line. Because if you're more socially responsible, you'll attract and retain and motivate, you know, more talented people. Uh, mm-hmm. your customers will believe in you more. Uh, you know, maybe even some some other stakeholders will be more supportive. Uh, and you know, that's good for your reputation net. Um what they found is that those arguments don't actually work mm. <laughs> in promoting social responsibility. And I, I think the reason, I think there are probably multiple reasons for it, but when, one strong reason from my perspective is when, when you try to make the business case, the problem is that people already believe in the business case for other stuff uh, that might, you know, might have the same cost, but they believe has greater benefits. So you know, if my goal is to improve my organization's reputation, corporate social responsibility is not the only way to do it. Right. If I want to attract and, and retain people, I could pay them more. Uh, I could design more interesting jobs. Uh, I could, you know, go out of my way to uh, to give them more autonomy. You know, there there are lots of things that we know, you know, would would move the needle there. And so, I think it's it's an argument that that often falls on deaf ears because even if people believe it, they don't. Even if they say, look, social responsibility, you know, will will lead to these effects, they don't necessarily think it's the best or most cost effective way mm. uh, to drive those effects. Mm. And so. What seems to work much better is the moral case, where instead of saying this is the smart thing to do, you actually let people know that this is the right thing to do. These are our values and principles. This is what we stand for. And we're going to do it regardless of the consequences, because that's who we are. And when you say that, right, you can't really object and say, well, well, no, it's going to cost too much. Yeah, but that's why we exist in the first place. We, we bring in profits so we can afford to do this. And so I think the, the, the evidence suggests to me that the moral case is probably underutilized. Yeah, so like I would just want to jump on uh, right on that because uh, there is this kind of some social critique say that you know business schools and uh, economics departments uh, in North America and in Western Europe, probably other parts of the world too, they kind of focus on this bottom line, this kind of notion of rational self-interest much more than this moral considerations, and sort of like it almost seems paradoxical. Is yeah, I think well, I think that's a problem, right? I think yeah. it's a problem that. You know, and I, I speak for myself as well as lots of colleagues. You know, if, if I, as a business school professor, feel like I can't stand up in front of the class and make a moral argument, I have to make a bottom line argument, then I, I feel like I've failed as a faculty member. Uh, I think right. that, you know, we, we have the same responsibility to raise questions about ethical practices as we do to raise questions about effective practices. 
that being said, I'm, I'm also more likely to defer those questions to my colleagues in our ethics department, right, who have mm-hmm. studied moral philosophy in depth or moral psychology or related fields and probably have a lot more expertise than I do. But I, I do I do wonder about the question of of whether businesses should be undertaking corporate social responsibility. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm I have to say I'm on the fence about this because I generally believe that organizations ought to have a clear mission and purpose. Okay. And they should be focused on, you know, on activities that advance that mission. And in an ideal world, uh, companies would, you know, would pursue missions uh, that themselves are socially responsible. Right. So if, if you make great products or you create meaningful services, um, that to me is your core social responsibility. And I think the problem is uh, that we have some major market externalities uh, that mm-hmm. you know, they create a dynamic where, you know, you, you have companies that get rewarded for producing products and services uh, that are not net beneficial, that may mm-hmm. even be harmful. Right. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to figure out if there's a way to change that dynamic. I have uh, a final question. Um, if we can, if I can just squeak this in, um, fire away. Um, it, it's uh, in terms of you know you you spend a lot of time looking at um, successful leaders, successful businesses, and from that sort of working out what what successful businesses seem to do. I mean, how do you navigate the problem that? when when people are describing how they've become successful or um, after the fact that that might not have that much to do with actually why they're successful if you're only looking at sort of successful lottery winners, successful companies, etc. So in your line, how do you tease that out? Well, I, I think part of, <laughs> part of our job as, as social scientists is to, you know, to not always take people's theories at face value. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I, I think that very often, uh, you have people who are unconsciously competent, who don't, you know, who, do, who don't actually know why they're good at something right. or how they achieved it. Right. Um, and just as often, maybe more often, you have people who are lucky, but think they're competent. And so I think that, you know, we, we should be skeptical whenever somebody says, look, you know, based on what I've achieved, here's what's important for success. Right. Uh, we should be especially skeptical whenever somebody starts a sentence, in order to be successful, you need to. Yeah, um, there, I, I don't think there's anything you need to do in order to be successful other than to do something. Right? <laughs> like if you never take any action, really hard to achieve anything. But true, true. you know, be, beyond that, I believe strongly in the systems dynamics principle of equifinality, which says that in any complex system, there are multiple paths to the same end. And you know, I think success in you know in any career or any domain of life is definitely you definitely have to navigate your way through a pretty complex system. And so there are lots of different tunnels or channels or, you know, or roads that you could take. And I think that instead of relying on, you know, people's intuitive theories about why they succeeded, the first thing we ought to do is, you know, we, we need to do comparative studies, right? Where we, we look at successful mm-hmm. and unsuccessful people. Right. right. Uh, we try to tease apart their strategies and the same goes for companies. And then once we think we understand what's driving success versus failure, then we design experiments to try to, to introduce changes in, you know, in those, those dimensions and see if they actually have the causal effect we think they do. And that, that, to me, obviously, is the gold standard of social science. But it is stunning how many companies are afraid to run experiments because you know, they, they're like, oh, no, if this doesn't work, mm. you know, what, what if we fail? I'm like, well, wouldn't you want to know that it didn't work so you can <laughs> learn from it? Yeah. And you know, well, oh, what, what if you know, people really like something, but it, you know, it, it's not cost effective? Well, 
I think your your job as a leader or manager is to build a learning organization. Yeah. And in a learning organization, uh, people feel the, you know, they, they have the freedom to take risks and to run smart experiments. Um, and you also let people know, look, we're going to be trying out new things all the time. And some of them are going to work. Some of them are not. Some of them are going to get mixed reactions. Um, and at the end of the day, we're going to try to learn from that and implement what's what's most productive and most rewarding for all of us involved moving forward. And, you know, hopefully you can get on board with that. I want that to be part of our culture. I certainly want it to be part of the culture of any organization I join. Adam, thank you so much. I appreciate you've got a lot on your plate. You've got that diving Olympics you need to get back into, which has fallen off the bottom of your list. Um, so, I'm way delinquent. Yeah, I'll right. never make it. Uh, thank you so much for today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Good to talk with you guys. And now it's time for a summary. We started off today by talking about how one creates a culture of non-conformity in evidence-based disciplines. Often there is the temptation to feel that all the answers have been arrived at, so it's sort of case closed. This can stifle creativity, so there's uh, a great importance on continuing to ask questions about boundary conditions and challenging our assumptions. We then looked at what is it that separates original managers from the rest of us, and while expertise in your particular discipline is, of course, important, there is the possibility of cognitive entrenchment where we know so much about our specific field that we take things for granted that should be questioned and we become blind to creative ideas. Uh, so, for example, it turns out that Nobel Prize winners often <laughs> have spent a great deal of time engaging the arts, particularly doing magic. Um, we then looked at how do you actually change a culture if you are not the person in charge? And uh, there's a few ideas that came up. We should uh, perhaps focus on trying to change the culture of our local team rather than tackling the whole organisation, um, seeking advice from the leaders themselves, and also to seek out culture carriers, the people that have um, an, an inordinate influence in the organisation and, and see if we can get them to uh, adopt our perspective. Then we tackled the question of how do we get organisations to be more pro-social? Now, there is the argument that this would help the bottom line by improving your reputation as an organisation or a company. But the problem with making that argument is often people perhaps correctly assess that that's not the most cost effective way of achieving that end. And really what we need to be making is a moral argument that it's, it is the right thing to do. But the deeper question is, should we really be getting corporations to have this add on of corporate social responsibility? And perhaps in an ideal world, this should not be an add on, but really the primary mission of the organization itself should be a socially responsible one. That's all for today. Until next time on the Old Wisdom Podcast. Thank you.